stay with you still, Sandy, right? All good news? Okay, see, there you go. And good, good. Our brother Tom in prayer also, and uh, let's just go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to just help us along. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for the chance to come to you and to pray to you, to praise you, to thank you for what you have done, and to petition you for the things we need. And you know the, the needs that are in this church and the people online, and uh, Lord, we would ask that you would be with them. Our brother Nick out in California, who we would like to uh, have him spend more time out of bed and up and about, and uh, I know it's debilitating for him. We pray for him as well. And Lord, we just thank you that we can come to you and ask you these things, and even the things we forget to ask you, that you already know them, and you're searching our hearts and you're searching our minds, and uh, just look into them and uh, help us to meet our needs according to your wisdom and to uh, just glorify you in the process, no matter what happens. And we're sure looking for the day when you come for us. The world has just become a real divided place in this nation, at least, and uh, the rest of the world is pretty much the same already anyway. So it's, it's, it's a sad country that we're living in over the past few days, and we would ask that you would just be with your people and let them know that there is a greater hope than, uh, than this world and that we can be in your presence at all times as we wait for your presence in reality. We thank you, Lord, for this. We ask that you bless the study ahead, and we just praise you and exalt you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, let's see here. i got uh, one place to go really quickly before we get into Romans. It's a book of Philippians, and uh, we're going to go to Philippians chapter 1. And uh, let's see here. I had somebody, uh, Beth, or Sister Beth, email me, and she asked for some some uplifting words because of the time we're living in and all the trouble that's in the world. And she said, what What would you have me? I, I don't know if she was asking me so she could send it on to people or what, but uh, I sent her these verses. Um, this is Philippians 1, 27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is speaking to believers. How do we move about the world that we're living in? It You know, with all of the bad news and all of the people coming against our president no matter what he says he's always wrong and it's just a vile wicked group of people on the left that are coming against him but uh, we would say only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel he puts the gospel and our pursuing Christ above everything else. The world is falling apart. Put, put the gospel in your eyes and in your, uh, your uh, headlights and just pursue it. He says, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries. And they're everywhere out there right now. Which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. So he's writing from a Roman prison. It's dirty. He's uh, uh, asking for people to uh, uh, just have that same attitude and to uh, believe in him, to be willing to suffer for Christ's sake, and to understand that that is going to happen. And uh, you'll never hear a Joel Olstein sermon in this church. It'll never happen because we don't preach that things are going to be great in the week ahead and that uh, uh, the Lord is going to bless you and he wants to bless you and he wants you to have the finest things in life. That's for next life. In this life, he wants us to glorify him and exalt him through good times and bad. 
But that's my encouragement today is to know that this world is a fallen place and that uh, Christ has prevailed over it. And our job, whether in health or sickness or whether in happiness or unhappiness, is to pursue the gospel of Christ, to share the gospel of Christ, and to just fix our eyes on Jesus. So there you go. Um, Romans 7, verse 7. Struggling with sin. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. Okay, he's going to make a, a point, which I want to jump ahead to in verse 8, but I'm not going to, about what that means concerning the law. But we'll just go with what he said right now, verse 7, 7. Again, as he has done several times already, Paul asks a rhetorical question to help us think an issue through. He's done that at the beginning of each section. He's asked this rhetorical question. This is possibly asked in response to someone who is trying to defend the law as still being in force, which is something that he writes against constantly, even after Christ's work was accomplished. And we know, I've said this a million times, Christ fulfilled the law. He completed the law. And we go through it every week before we start the Leviticus sermons. The law is obsolete. It's annulled. It's set aside in Christ. It's nailed to the cross. On and on. But there are people that are still saying this. And so his question begins with, what shall we say then? It is certainly asked as a result of his statement in verse 5, which he said, for when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law we're at work and our members to bear fruit for death. Okay, Paul, if what you said is true and the law arouses these sinful pleasures in us, then is the law sin? That's what he's asking because it's a natural question. Mm -hmm. if, sure. if we have these uh, desires arousing in us because of the law saying don't do these things and all of a sudden it comes to mind, is the law sin? Okay, that that is the question that would naturally come about. Okay, and... Um, he says, um, is the law insufficient to justify us or allow us to grow in sanctification? Is it designed to make those under it worse people than, were in, than when it was introduced? You see, all of these could be logical questions, and maybe all of them together. Let me read them again. Okay, Paul, if what you said is true, what he just said about the law and about coveting, and the law arouses these sinful pleasures in us, then is the law sin? Is the law insufficient to justify us or allow us to grow in sanctification? And finally, is it designed to make those under it worse people than was before it was introduced? Natural questions that you might have. And his answer is the same as it has been five times already to such similar questions. Certainly not. He asks these rhetorical questions to get people to think things through because this is certainly coming up in our own minds. What about this? What about this? Because he's giving this first defense, and then somebody comes and says, well, what about this? He's trying to get people to think the process through clearly. If the law is sin, then God, who authored the law, authored sin. The issue is one of misunderstanding where the evil lies. Where does the evil lie? If God authored, that's right, it is in man. It is not in God. And God is trying to get us to see that. The first thing we think always is to project things away from us, always. People say, I didn't do that, or I'm not as bad as Hitler, or, or and it, we are always projecting away from us. And so the natural question is what we just pr proposed based on what Paul said, all right? It's natural for us to do that. But the law, the evil is in us. It is not in the law which came from God. To show that this is true, he states, on the contrary. 
This demonstrates that the thought which is presented is actually the opposite of what is correct. The law isn't sin. In fact, exactly the opposite is true. And in support of this, I present that I would not have known sin except through the law. It's the only way that it would have come about. Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. They, there were, let's say, 100 types of trees around them. Just as an example, there might have been 1,000 types of trees, but there were a bunch of different trees around them. If God had said nothing about the trees, then what they did with the trees would not matter, right? right. right. But he said something about one tree and one tree only. All right. If he had said absolutely nothing about the trees, then there would have been no sin imputed to Adam and Eve. If he said, you can climb any tree you want, but you cannot cut any down, then that would have been the law, right? It doesn't matter what the issue is. You can pull all of the leaves off of any tree you want except for that tree over there. Now, over in Israel, I'm going to give you an example of a law. In Israel, they have olive trees at the Garden of Gethsemane, okay? Some of them go back thousands of years, okay? They are ancient, ancient trees. Even if they were cut down, they can still sprout up again, all right? So these are ancient trees that are there. The roots are mangled. But how many people go to the Garden of Gethsemane, do you think, every year? A lot of people, okay? Now, an olive tree, even if it's an old olive tree, really isn't that big. And if every single person that went took a olive leaf off of the olive tree, how many leaves would be left on that tree, right? We're having a laugh here for a particular reason, which I'm not going to say out loud. But they have a law at the Garden of Gethsemane. It's posted right there. Do not pick the leaves off the trees. And you think, well, what a silly thing to do. Here, I, I got an olive tree. But if everybody did that, how many trees would there be left within a month? There wouldn't be any. So the brave person alone, the staunch soul, will actually reach out and pick one of those, those leaves. And so I will say nothing more than that. But that is, that's an example of a law. If there is no law, then sin can't be imputed. You can go pull all the leaves off of the tree. But Israel has very strict laws. And if anybody was ever caught taking those leaves off of the trees in the Garden of Gethsemane, then they would be executed on the site. Okay, that's not true. I'm just, I'm I'm making this, we're having fun here for a specific reason. I will not say any more than that. But you see, there are laws and they come about, the the violation of law actually comes about because of the giving of the law if somebody breaks the giving of that law. Okay, so you've got all these trees. If he didn't say anything about it, you can go climb any tree you want, but you can't cut it down, whatever. That is the law. The law was for them in the Garden of Eden that they couldn't eat of a particular tree's fruit. That was the law. Okay, I want to read you something right now, and I want to dispel this myth right now because I've heard this in sermons, and um, there are certain things that can be gleaned from uh, passages. You know, you can infer things, and then there are some things that you cannot infer. All right, and one of the things that you cannot infer is, I'm going to read it to you. It says here... um, um, it, it, the Lord said to Adam, he said, um, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Okay, that was law, right there. Okay, now if we go into um, uh, chapter 3, it says, and the woman said to the serpent, the serpent challenged her, you know, you should try this nummy thing out. Verse 2 says, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall shall you touch it, lest you die. Okay? 
Now, I have heard people in sermons say, she actually stretched God's word by saying that, because it doesn't say that over here. That is incorrect. Because not everything that the Lord told these people is recorded. He gave him a law, but he could have said, don't even touch it. And so we don't know that. There are things that can be inferred, and there are things that cannot be inferred. In other words, um, there are certain things that happened in David's life. And later it says, you can't do, or the Lord said not to do this. Well, was he lying there, just like she was lying here? No, it's just that the, David knew he had gotten a revelation from the Lord at some point that you're not to do this certain thing. So we don't want to insert things into the Bible. We can infer things out of the Bible at times. They have to be good inferences, but we do not want to insert something into the text if it's not there. If she said it, she was told it, most probably. Now, it could be that she added to the word of God by saying that. It could be, but we can't know that one way or another. It is not possible for us to know it. Well, that is not adding to the word of God unless we know that God said, don't do this thing. Okay, yes? I would uh, I would think that maybe she put another fence on the outside of his fence. That could be. That is more than possible. If I don't touch it, then I know I won't need it. So, That's right. That could right. be. And that, But that would be then, if she did that, that would be her adding to what the Lord said. Well, and true. that would be legalism, because we do this yeah. in churches all the time. Yeah. You can't drink alcohol. The Bible never says that. It says it to the priests when they're ministering in the holy place. It says it again in Ezekiel, the same same thing. The priests aren't to drink while they're um, doing in their duties. And the second time is when you're under a Nazarite vow. Other than that, it never says it. And the only passage that people use in no-drinking sermons is found in Proverbs, where it says uh, it talks about the person that drinks, and he wakes up, and he's, you know, he's rocking like a ship, and then he wakes up, and he says, I can't wait to start again. Well, one, that's descriptive, and two, it's talking about a drunkard. It's not talking about drinking. It says it about drunkards. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But the, the point is that we don't want to add in to the Word of God. Right. And so if she did that, right. then we you can say that in a sermon. Right. It appears that she well, did, but we don't want to dogmatically say things like I, that. I would never insert it into a sermon, but it would seem that Eve might have had the correct assumption that if it's a law... right. And I didn't know about it before. It didn't probably mean anything to me before. But now it's a law. And it's right. like, oh, my gosh. I know I want what I can't have. Right. I'm so, just going to stay away from it. Yeah, what so did, I'm just going to take two Lord steps tell, back. What did the Lord tell Adam again? He said, you shall not eat of the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, um, lest you die. Well, I, well, that's it. That's right. But she, well, you, she, have to, you, have you have to touch it in order to, to pick touch it. it. That's yeah. right. But we don't want to add anything into the Word of God is the point I'm making. And I have heard that in sermons. And so people walk around with this thing in their head that she added to the Word of God. We can't know all of the conversation that went on in the Garden of Eden. All we have is what is given. And then we can say, she said this, and so either the Lord said it or she's adding to the Word of God. But people just dogmatically say something. That's not appropriate. We don't want to do that. So that's, that's the point I'm making there. But the law was that they couldn't eat a particular tree's fruit. If he had not given that law, then there would be no sin for eating that fruit, right? Just like don't cut the tree down, and if they cut it down, then that would be sin. Whatever law he gives, that is the law. We've got crazy people in North Korea that have horrifying laws, okay? That's the law. Now, they have laws that we would think are morally unjust, right? If you uh, proselytize Christianity, then, you know, that's against the law, and you can be imprisoned or you can be executed, when I was in Malaysia, Christians were not allowed to proselytize Muslims. They were not allowed to do it. That was against the law. It's their law, right? Now, there is a higher law 
coming from God that we are to proselytize other people. So we do that takes us to Acts where Peter said, do we um, uh, obey God rather than men, right? And we have a higher law, therefore we must violate the law of Malaysia if we're in Malaysia and you know we come to a Muslim and it's time to evangelize them. It, that's our responsibility. But the law is the law. Whatever law the country sets, even if it's unjust, they are in charge. There's only a couple ways of getting around that. One of them is overthrowing the government. One is disobeying. Two is, uh, you know, uh, uh, following per- following in step with it, as long as it's not contrary to God's law, etc. You've only got a few options and things like this. But um, here's a very good example of this: is that uh, what is the name of the country? Iran over there, Saudi Arabia too, but Iran. When you go to Iran and you're a female, they ask you to wear the headscarf, right? If you don't want to wear a headscarf, don't go to Iran. Right. That's their country, right? I mean, that's just all there is to it. When I was in Japan, there were certain things that we don't have those laws in America, and the GIs would get so upset. Listen, this is their country. We are in their country. You do whatever you want on the base, but when you step foot off of that base, you must be in agreement with the laws of that nation, okay? That's just the way it is. So... the law is the law. Wherever you are, there is somebody that has made a law, and if you are under that law, because you, it, that's what was nice about being in Malaysia. I had a black passport. I was a diplomat there, and oh. it didn't matter what I did. I could go up and shoot somebody, and they couldn't touch me. All they could do is say, "We want him out of our country." All right, that was a really nice thing to have because they have some very, very strict laws that you might not even know what they are, and if you violate them, you, know, you could be in jail for the rest of your life. And so it was very nice having that. I didn't have to learn the laws of the country because I was immune from them. And if something did happen, which nothing ever did, they would have just said we want him to go. So that, you know, and that's something that Paul calls himself what throughout the New Testament? Bondservant. Another word. Ambassador. An ambassador of Christ. He does call himself a, a bondservant, but he is an ambassador of Christ. He is a representative of God on this planet, representing Jesus Christ. So everywhere that he was... He should have been in a state of immunity because he is a diplomat from another leader. Okay, obviously that wasn't the case with him, and it's not the case with us. We may be ambassadors of Christ appealing to the message of Christ, but go try that in North Korea and see how far it gets right. you. All right, God will deal with the people that deal wrongly with his ambassadors. But in the meantime, we have to understand that there are, there are things going on in this world that are beyond our ability to say, I have a right. Okay, don't make that error. This is all falling into what he is saying right here in Romans chapter 7. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. The law was that they couldn't eat the particular tree's fruit. If you hadn't given that law, then there would be no sin for eating the fruit. Introducing a just law is not sinful. And that takes us right back to what I was saying about unjust laws around the, the world. The Lord will deal with those things, but they are in charge. And as long as they're in charge, that's the way it is. It simply simply demonstrates what sin is or will be if the law is broken. So he gave a just law. He has every right. He created the tree. He created man. He created the water that's watering the tree. Everything about the process is God's. He has a right to do exactly what he wants, and giving a just law is not sinful. That takes us back to his question here. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Did God sin by giving that law? Absolutely not. It was completely his prerogative to give. He has every right to give it. There is nothing wrong with it. It is not sin. But this is, remember, this takes us back to what I was saying at the beginning. We project 
we say, I was okay with, or I didn't do, or everything that we do in life is to protect ourselves, to defend ourselves from what is happening around us. But in the end, it's important to remember that we are under given uh, governmental authorities. And so, you know, like I said, you go over to Japan and you violate their law and you say, but they don't want to hear it. They do not want to hear but. They want to hear, here's your fine, you pay it, or you've broken our law, and they put you in cuffs. And now, fortunately, in Japan, the service members have what's called SOFA, Status of Forces Agreements. Certain things they were exempt from if something happened. If there was a willful violation of a law of Japan, though, like stealing or you know, protesting in public or whatever, SOFA did not cover that kind of stuff. But certain things, I was talking to Burke earlier, when we were in Japan, uh, one of the things that SOFA covered for people in Japan was Japan has very, very strict emission laws on their cars. When you have a car, after just how many years was it? It was like eight years or something. The taxes on that car went out of sight, out of sight. And the reason why is because, one, they wanted to say, well, it's emissions and we want to keep the, uh, the, the, you know, the atmosphere nice. But actually, it's they wanted to stimulate the economy. They wanted people buying new cars. And so cars that were just a few years old were junk. You, you, you couldn't sell them. You couldn't do anything with them. But the U.S. servicemen were uh, exempt from that agreement. And so they could bring their old junky cars from America or over. Or I bought her a beautiful Mercedes. It was this beautiful thing. We bought it for almost nothing. Because oh they, they, for them to have that car would have been huge taxes. And this was one of, it was uh, something, I can't remember the name, but it was a something stroke eight. It was a, a French diplomat's car. And when they left, they just put it out and no Japanese could buy it. And so it came for almost nothing. And it was this beautiful car that had these pneumatic, um, you know, you push down the button or nowadays it's all electric. You just, and the buttons come up. Well, back then you didn't have it. It was either push down or pull up or you had pneumatics. And so it had this pneumatic system running through. It was a wonderful little car. And we tried to bring it back to the U.S., but then we got a job down in Malaysia. And because of that, I had to end up selling it and, and getting rid of it. But... That's the way it is. There are certain things that you are exempt from. What? How did you sell it? To another GI. I don't oh, remember who, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because GIs are like, oh, sure, yeah. I got a Mercedes and, you know, whatever. But, yeah, we were exempt from that. But the, the, the sad thing was that a lot of Americans went and they shipped their own car overseas. You're sending American junk over to Japan and you could get a beautiful Japanese car and drive it for three years and then sell it to some other GI. For the same price, oh. and it, yeah, oh, it was, what a great, great! It was a real deal that we had on on uh, cars over there. But that, it all ties in with what we're seeing here: laws, exemption from laws, is the law sin, etc. Okay, so um, I, I want to read that last sentence again: introducing a just law is not sinful. He had a right to do it. It simply demonstrates what sin is. I'm going to demonstrate to, and he could have picked anything. He could have picked anything. You can play with rocks in any river except that river over there. He could have picked anything, but he picked the tree of life for a reason. Why? The tree of life is now denied us. We're not going to live. Everything fits into the rest of the theology of the Bible by calling this tree the tree of life. And what is the tree of life picture? Christ. Eternity through Christ. Okay. You're not allowed to eat of the fruit of this, okay? And it, all the way through the rest of the Bible, the tree of life. Here you've got Christ hanging on the cross, offering us the tree of life himself and his blood, okay? So all the way through the Bible, we have these pictures. So he picked that because it made the right picture of what he was going to do by redeeming man. 
eventually sin would have come into the world at some point in some way and it needed to be dealt with it was dealt with immediately the law was violated the tempter came in and and did that and now we've been in this terrible world ever since waiting for our redemption yes and the Jews still ain't got the tree of life they still ain't got the tree of life that's the that, real truth that and I tell you it breaks my heart it's, as a matter of fact I'll announce it on Sunday that lady that sent us some Jewish tracts she sent me a whole book on evangelizing Jews and it's just it's marvelous I got it a couple days ago and I got it here to uh, let people know but if you want a copy of that it's got all kinds of verses in there it's got how to approach them everything because they need the tree of life Okay, there is there's national salvation coming for Israel someday when Christ returns to them. Their leaders call on Christ and he returns to them. That's going to happen, all right? But in the meantime, every Jew that comes to Christ is no different than every Gentile that comes to Christ. It's individually, they will come back individually or they will not come back and they will not, at good point, they will not have access to the tree of life. So that's something that if you want to know about that, just send me an email and I'll send that uh, information and you can get that. It's a great book. It's just a pamphlet. It's not a book. It's just, you know, a pamphlet of maybe 10, 10 pages or so. Anyway, so, however, an unjust law could be the cause of sin. God could have given an unjust law. I'm not saying God could have, but I, you know what I'm saying, if he did. God could not because he's not unjust, but think this through. God created Adam and Eve as beings needing food and water, right? Got to eat. It's what sustains us, all right? If he told them that they were not allowed to eat or drink, then the law would be unjust. It would be an unjust law because he's depriving them of something that they need. He's not the author of evil and he would not have done that, but I'm saying he could have. Not that, I don't mean that actually he could have, but he could have, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So I don't want to impute wrongdoing to God even in a hypothetical situation other than to show you what could have happened, all right? So if he told them not to do that, then if uh, the law would have been unjust, how could sin be imputed to somebody that needs to eat and drink when they ate and drank? It would be an unjust imputation of sin, all right? The law would, in fact, cause sin. He would be causing them to sin. And by doing that, then he would be the author of their sinning. And that's, Paul is showing us the distinction between these two. He has a right to give any law. I do not want anybody in this church to sit in that chair right there, and if you do, then you'll have upset me. Well, what a stupid thing for you to do. I'm not going to that church anymore, right? There are good laws, there are bad laws, there are stupid laws, there's all kinds of stuff going on in the world. But when it comes to God, everything he does is absolutely perfect, and it will never, as I said in the sermon in Leviticus about three weeks ago, no law within the law of Moses will ever cause a person to violate another law within the law of Moses. The woman has to be purified on a certain day. Well, guess what? The child is circumcised after that day. All of the laws in there come together and they form perfectly without ever causing somebody to violate one or another. And yet, they violated all of the laws continuously because, you know, it it is our human nature to say, well, I can get away with this and he's not going to know. And, you know, I need this more than that person needs it at this time. And what does it say about stealing bread? Uh, Solomon says, you know, if somebody steals bread because he needs to eat, you know, it, we understand that. But if he gets caught, he's going to be punished because the law says don't steal, right? He'll have to pay back fivefold. But I was hungry. It doesn't negate the law, okay? The law says you shall not steal. If you are hungry and you need to eat, then you need to go and start begging for food. Or you need to say, I am willing to work anyway, any way at all to pay my wages in order to get food, all right? 
That is what the law says. It, he doesn't want people being indolent. He doesn't want people being idle. And so he says, you know, you shall not steal. And that includes not stealing something that you really need to exist under, okay? I know this because I go to my jobs every single morning down at 7-Eleven, and I did another place down this morning as well, and I took care of them all. I went to three different jobs this morning because I understand that I have bills to pay and they need to be paid, right? This is what we do. I know people in the world that would do anything rather than work. And what do they do? They end up stealing and they end up, you know, uh, taking from the government. The government promotes this type of thing. We need to understand that God would never do that. He will never give us a law that is unjust. And when he gives us a law, he expects us to meet the demands of that law, not to steal. Okay, so um, we'll go on. Uh, the law would, in fact, cause sin if he gave a law where they couldn't eat or drink. But this isn't the case. The law is good, it's reasonable, and it is correct. The same is true with the law of Moses, as Paul will now demonstrate when he says, I would not have known sin except through the law. This is exactly what was demonstrated concerning Adam and Eve. Exactly. The law given to them was not sin, and it wouldn't have caused them to sin. But when the sin was in them, waiting to be aroused, Paul continues, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. Okay? The law simply put in them the desire to do these things, or actually Satan did. But the law made it possible for that to happen. The same thing with covetousness. What is covetousness? You know, I walk around and I look at things and I say, gee, I'd like that. And I didn't, what's wrong? But when he says, you shall not covet, all of a sudden I say, oh, it, it, it revives sin in me. It actually brings it out of me. Okay? Although the principle applies to any part of the law, whether the Ten Commandments or some other precept found throughout the law, 613 commands there, Paul chooses the last of the big ten. Now, why would he do that? Why would he pick coveting? It's the last one. It's the least important of the Ten Commandments, right? Well, not really. Absolutely not. <laughs> Every single law that is violated is based on the Tenth Commandment. All of them. I want to worship another god. I covet that other god's worship. Okay? I, I uh, am going to commit adultery. Why? Because I coveted another man's wife. It doesn't matter what sin you commit under the Big Ten, coveting had a part in it. It may have been a small part, or it may have been the main impetus for it. But another thing about coveting, and I'm probably going to re review this again in my own words, but another thing about coveting is that it is a sin which only God knows about. You and God and nobody else. Right? So to say thou shalt not covet implies that it's a much higher law than these other ones, because other people know when you're doing those other things. Okay? Only God knows when you're coveting. And when you covet and you then break the first or the third or the tenth or the ninth commandment, it is God who knew the impetus behind it, okay? Just as he knew that Satan was there testing these two people, he knew everything that was going on. Nothing gets around God, nothing escapes his attention, especially, especially coveting. Anytime that we covet, he understands that already. Hence, he sent Jesus because he understands our weakness, all right? But he does know when we covet, all right? So, um, and he only cites the basic premise of the commandment, not the entire commandment. This is um, Paul who did, as was given in Exodus 20. Let's read the whole commandment just so we know it. And all he gave was just the basics of it. But Exodus 20, whatever verse 17. it is. 17. If you're there, just read it. Um, have you got it? No? I got it. 
Um, okay, 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Okay, so that's the, the 10th commandment. And all Paul does is says, you shall not covet. He just touches on it, but it's all-inclusive of everything that could be wrong. You shall not covet, right? It uh, applies to all of them. Uh, the rest of it mentions things that can be coveted, such as your neighbor's house. His citing of the opening portion is uh, intended to include all coveting, all right? Something that would not be sin unless we were told that to covet was sinful, right? If somebody didn't know that coveting, there was a law against coveting, it would not be sin. But God put it in the law and sin is revived in us when we covet because of the law, all right? People all over the world that don't have the law covet and God does not impute that to them as sin because they don't have the law, right? But once you have the law and you break that law, you are now sinning, okay? So um, only when coveting is identified as coveting and that it is wrong can we know that coveting is sin. Okay, life application. When God gives a law, it is always just, it is always righteous, and it is always attainable. Just like the guy that stole because he was hungry. He could have gotten that food some other way. The fact that the food was sitting there that he stole meant that he could have gotten it some other way. He could have sold himself to the person as a Hebrew slave. That is authorized under the law. No law will ever cause a person to sin because God gave that law. It will only cause them to sin because of their internal desires and impulses, right? A person would be a fool to say, I'm not going to give you this bread when you're giving me six years of labor, right? Nobody would do it. So the person stole, I'm hungry, but there was an option for him because the law says you can sell yourself into slavery. And the slavery does have an end date. And it says when you end your slavery, what is supposed to happen when a person ends his slavery under another Hebrew? He receives a lot. He says, don't just let him go away empty-handed. Give him this and this and this and this and take care of him because his uh, value to you has been far more than what you have, uh, than, uh, anyway, you know what I'm saying, than another slave would have been. That's right. So there's always an option under the law to not sin against God's law. It is always, always, always attainable. All right? Note it, nothing that we are asked to do by him is sinful. Nothing. Instead, sin is brought about by our knowledge of and failure to obey his law. Therefore, it is imperative to know what God expects and then adhere to that. Now, having said that, before we go into the next verse, I told you a couple weeks ago about somebody that posted on uh, one of my YouTube videos about the law. It was on one of these Leviticus sermons, and he said, um, um, he quoted Matthew where uh, Jesus said, uh, assuredly, I say to you that not one jot or tittle will fall from the law until all is fulfilled, implying that we're under the law, because that's one of the text verses of the Hebrew Roots Movement people is to say, see, we're under the law, because the law still stands. It will. And I said, my answer to him, I didn't challenge him in any way. I said, thank God that Jesus fulfilled it for us. That was my answer. Thank God that Jesus fulfilled it for us. Now we have a choice. We can either be under this law, fulfilling every jot and tittle, or we can be under Christ and I said, thank God for Christ who allows us that option. In his next post, which I read, I think it was yesterday, maybe two days ago, he said, um, um, his commandments are not burdensome. And, you know, once again, taking these things out of context, that's from 1 John, and uh, I didn't respond to it. I'm not going to get into any 
scripture tennis with these people. I give them one chance to understand what's right theology, and I'm not going back and forth with people. But what are his commandments, if you were to sum them up, based on that verse that John said, and I know what you're going to say it, I know you are, what is what would be the commandments that John is speaking of? John 6, 29. John 6, 29. Come on, you know what it is. No, that's one of them. He did say that. But this is the work. This is the work of God that you believe in the one whom he has sent. Okay? He sent Christ. What is he speaking about the commandments then? Is he speaking about the Old Testament? No, because Christ fulfilled all of those commandments. All right? Not one jot or tittle of the law. Think these things through because people are going to come to you with these out of context verses and they're going to say see we're under the commandments so if Christ came and fulfilled the law and the work of God for us is to believe in the one whom he sent then anything that he tells us after he did the work fulfilling the Old Testament is our commandments correct? Mm-hmm. and where do we get that? Paul, Paul. the so letters of Paul John what? John uh, I, it's in one John I don't know the verse one right off the top of my head but um, 5, 2, and 3 uh, what is 5, 2, and 3 Thank go you. ahead and read it if you have it there one John this is five. how we know that we love the children of God by loving God and keeping his commands and keep and carrying out his commands this is love for God to obey commands his commands are not burdensome, are not burdensome. but the law is burdensome isn't it because Paul says it again and again he calls it bondage he calls it you know he uses different terms to say what a burden the law is what did Jesus say even while he was still fulfilling the law come unto me all ye, that's right, who are burdened with a heavy load, and I will, uh, I will give you rest. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The law is fulfilled in Christ. And you can show people these things in black and white, and they will not understand it. That the law is fulfilled in Christ, and what John is speaking about has nothing to do with that, but it has to be taken in context, okay? It has to be taken under the premise that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and that anything he gives us after that is for our marching orders, including loving, including, you know, honoring the Son, and including the words of Paul, which are written for this dispensation. He is the apostle to the law, right? Oh, the Gentiles. Oh, okay. Were the Gentiles under law? Oh, okay. It's all starting to fit, isn't it? Okay, let's go on to say... He he told that bird to come to him and said, I've kept all those things. That's right. He says, what, what you need to do is put me for... That put know, me for, sell everything and come and follow me. And he went yeah. away sad because he had great wealth. Mm-hmm. Absolutely right. He had missed that the law looks in here instead yeah. of external. Mm-hmm. All right, seven, eight. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Apart from the law, sin is dead. Think it through. All right, the words in this verse hit at the heart the very heart of the depravity of man and the immense glory of what must surely be realized in the work of Jesus Christ. In the previous verse, we were shown that we would not have known sin except through the law, right? We went through that in detail, talked about all kinds of laws, laws in Japan, laws in Iran, the law of God. We would not have known that we were sinning except the law. If I went in once again to Japan, and uh, what's something that is against the law in Japan that... um, uh, Trying to think of something. Uh, I, I, there, surely there's something that making I making people say refrigerator. Yeah, making people <laughs> say refrigerator. If you want to have fun with the Japanese, okay, Jap, Jap, the Japanese language is based on vowels. 
All of it. If you want to learn Japanese, say this after me and you'll know Japanese. A-E-U-A-O. <laughs> All sounds end with those sounds. Okay, you got gagi gugego, mami mumemo, zazi zuzizo, babi bubebo. Everything ends with a, a vowel, one of those vowels with the exception of the silent N. The word gohan is rice. It's the silent N, gohan. Okay, other than that, everything ends with this. Now, believe it or not, I was sitting on an airplane going to Japan, and I, I didn't know anything about Japanese, and this guy was flying to America, or flying back from America. You remember the Bhagwan, the guy, all the people that wore the red out in Washington State, and, and he was this crazy Hindu guy, and people would make the... Remember he had a Rolls Royce, and he had his cult out there? Well, one of these Bhagwan people was going back to Japan after visiting his, his guru, and he taught me... He said, this is all you need to know. If you can remember this, then everything else will make so much more sense when you start learning the language. Ayueo. He actually said Ayueo. Anyway, so um, uh, he taught me these basics, and then what is possessive would be like Watashi no, and then what is um, uh, Watashi wa, I don't know. Anyway, it's I. That's not possessive. It's Anyway, okay, so he taught me these basics. All right, so if you want to have fun with the Japanese, you ask them to say something that ends with a a uh, consonant, like the word grape. They can't say grape. They have to say gudepu, okay, because they're, everything they know ends with a vowel, gudepu. All right, well, if you want to really blow a Japanese away, you want to make a lot of money, ask them to say the word refrigerator, because they can't do it. All right, it takes them a long time to learn to say refrigerator, and if they're just for the first time trying to say it, it ain't going to happen. So that's what he was saying there. Okay, so the law in Japan is no saying refrigerator. Now, I go down to have dinner, and I want to get a dinner, right? I want to get it for free. What am I going to do? I'll bet you that you can't say a word. And then if you can't say a word, you have to make me the dinner for free. I would get my meals free forever. But I didn't know that getting a Japanese to try to say refrigerator was against the law. What? No, I'm giving an example. She's, she's missing the entire point. So, but you see what I'm saying? And so now I am in trouble. That's what Paul is writing about. I'm just giving an example so you can learn. Is that if you have a law, it doesn't matter if it's crazy law, right? The law is what brings about sin. And so I didn't know that. And so now this guy, I have to pay him a 10,000 yen fine because I tried to get him to do something. And the law is that, you know, instead of stealing food and I have to pay back fivefold, the law in Japan is I have to give 10,000 yen to every person I try to dupe into saying refrigerator. Okay? So there you go. It's, it's an object lesson. That's all. But that's what we're seeing right here from Paul's hand. I'm just trying to make it interesting for you. Okay? So... Uh, they, these words hit at the heart of the depravity of man. We talked about the previous verse. We've shown that we would not have known sin except through the law. Using coveting as an example, it was demonstrated that we wouldn't even know what it meant to covet unless we were told not to do it. All right? And then he brings in the words, but. But sin, the excitation of this act, the wicked principle in the heart, takes its opportunity, as Paul says, by the commandment. My heart is wicked, and I say, I know I'm not supposed to do this, and I do it. Not because it was ever wrong before, but because I know that it's wrong. Mm -hmm. Sin takes the opportunity for me to do the thing I shouldn't do. I see people do this all the time, even at 7-Eleven. I'm there every single morning, and people, what is one of the laws about having a piece of paper in your hand? All right, and you're, you, uh, what are you supposed to do with that paper after you crumple throw it up? Throw it in the garbage. Throw it in the garbage. We have laws on Siesta Key. Yeah. Thou shalt not throw garbage on the ground, right? It's yeah. one of the laws out there. I can't tell you how many people get out of their car, and before they do, they take all their stuff and they throw it out the window. What? Everything. 
they just they clean out their car on the parking lot. They Stop. get out and they go in and buy something. And then on the way out, they pull out their hot dog from the thing and they throw that on the ground. I, I, every single week on Wednesday morning, I go and I blow everything off, right? I blow everything up. There is not one grain of sand on the parking lot of 7-Eleven and the mall next to it and the third place down. It's completely clean. By the time I get back to 7-Eleven, there's paper and garbage everywhere. Okay? Thou shalt not pollute. Yeah, I'm telling you. But that's what I'm talking about right here. The heart says, I know I'm not supposed to do this, and because I'm not, I'm going to do it because I can get away with it. Nobody's looking, and I am too lazy to walk two feet. Do you know, I said... I'm not kidding. They're on the side of 7-Eleven, the south side of 7-Eleven. This is all relevant to this. This is people sinning on Siesta Key. They walk out and they'll get a, a case of beer and they'll get pizza and they'll get some hot dogs and stuff. This is especially during the tourist season. On the south side of 7-Eleven, I've got all grass in there. It used to just be dirt and I put in grass and it's beautiful. I take care of it every week. But they will go and sit on this south side of 7-Eleven right there and you can see where they're all lined up. And right there, right within one foot of the first person, there is a garbage can. Oh. And I take it out every single morning of my life, except Sunday. It's right there. And they will sit there. And I'm not kidding. By the next morning during the summer or the winter, I will have at least two garbage bags full of garbage sitting there. And that will be empty. There'll be nothing in this. And yet there's garbage littering this entire area. Beer cans. And I take the beer cans and recycle them so I get a penny each. But anyway, I don't mind that. But all the other stuff... Filthy, and this is constant through the winter right, time. But the, the difference between that and God's law is that there's no repercussions. There's for that. no repercussions for that. No. There is a so, repercussion right. for God's law. That's exactly right, and that is that is exactly what Paul is getting at. I'm glad you brought that up there. But this is there are laws, and people have sin revived in them, and they take advantage of those laws by throwing their garbage out because somebody else will pick it up. It's just the way of the world. So here we go. Um, uh, where was I? Okay, so um, sin revives it through the commandment. Once the commandment is given, the heart is stirred into the act of rebellion by presuming it could do the very thing it was instructed not to do. Okay, no skateboarding, and people skateboard all over the place. If one of them gets hurt, we're not liable because we've got a sign up. They don't care about the sign. They just want to go skateboarding. That's fine. Okay, in the Garden of Eden, there was no sin. There was no sin. All was holy. Everything was perfect. There existed a state which never was before and which could never be again. There was free will, but there was no commandment which could excite sin into being. Imagine that. There, and that's why we talked, remember I talked about heaven and what's going to be like it. How will there be no sin? How will we be beings without sin? It'll be like this. But we will have the knowledge of what we have gone through in the past. So it'll never be those idyllic conditions that were in existence before. It'll actually be better because we will know what God was willing to do to redeem us. So it'll actually be better, but we will still have all. I am not one of these people that says we are not going to remember the lives we lived. What would be the point of going to heaven and not remembering what we were redeemed from? I, I can't even imagine it. Well, I mean, what am I doing here, right? What am I, that song, what who am I doing that? here? What's but that? Who said that to you? I, you hear that all the time? There are people, I actually, the guy that I have breakfast with once a month, which this month will be on the 30th of the month, was told that he will not remember who he was when he goes to heaven and he walked away from his faith. He's, he was told that as a little boy, an Episcopal preacher says, yeah, you're not going to, don't worry about the things you've done because you're not going to remember that. And he walked away. He is a, an avowed atheist. You know who I'm wow. talking about. He's a wonderful person. I see him once a month and I'm always, I, 
it's great IHOP. The girls there are Christians for the most part. Not all of them, but, you know, and so I will grab one of their hands. I'll say, come, let's have pray before we eat. And he sits there and he takes it. I, I yeah, man. I would, and he knows I'm going to do it. We've been friends for many, many years, but he actually walked away from the faith because he was told that. He said, and there's that's, nothing you could say to him? Of course I can, but it's in his head now. It's in his head. He's, there's he, got to be a way to change something. That's why I go out to breakfast with him. Well, I'm saying because I, and I post my Jesus stuff, which he sees every single day. All you can do is be a witness to him. You can't you can't make a horse drink water. You can only take him there, and so that's. He, 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 I say salt that in his oats. Yeah. I say that. I say that because there's somebody that I had been trying to put it in her head. She turned around this week and, and said to me. I don't believe Jesus is the Son of God. There you go. Shut me right down. There you go. But just I'm keep like, being who you are. Keep being who you are. And someday you so may upsetting. be a witness when she's laying in a hospital bed. You don't know. You just you just know. keep just keep doing That's it. Upsetting. I, it is upsetting. That's I, I love this guy. He's seventy two or three. He's not in great health, so one of these days he's gonna be punching his ticket. And I hope I get a chance when he's laying in the hospital or something to one more time talk to him. So so have you ever said to him, where do you think you're going to go when you die? What do you think is going to happen? Yeah, he says die? nothing. He, he thinks there's nothing. Yeah, he's, he's an evolutionist. He believes in the oh. reptilian brain stem and oh. all of this. You know, it, it, that's, what, that's what wrong theology does to people. That's how people get ruined. You know the people we read on the, the highlight of the week? How many of them walked away because they heard something when they were young? And it took them years to come back to the Lord. So what happens? It's a fallen world, and you have to be careful with theology, or you're going to ruin somebody's life. Okay, and you know maybe he was saved before. I don't know. If he was, he is saved, but he has sure walked away from a life of possible faith. So let's go on. Um, uh, however, the commandment was given. Let me read that last sentence again. There was a state which existed which was never before and which could never be again. There was free will, but there was no commandment which could excite sin into being. However, the commandment was given. Genesis two verses sixteen and seventeen. Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Once the words were spoken, it produced in man an evil desire to do the very thing that he was instructed not to do. All right, I brought this next lesson here up in a sermon not too long ago, and some of you may remember. Edgar Allan Poe would call it the imp of the perverse. Do you remember when I talked about that in a sermon? Maybe you don't. All right, most people sleep through them anyway. It's okay. The very thing that shouldn't be done suddenly springs to life and wants to do that thing. If you want to know somebody that understands the human state about as well as anybody, read Edgar Allan Poe. Okay, I used to read every single thing that he wrote every single year. I've read it from beginning to end. Since I met the Lord, I haven't read Poe even once. However, I did re-go uh, re back to the Imp of the Perverse to give an introduction into that one particular sermon. What it is, is that uh, Edgar Allan Poe, uh, I think it was he killed somebody. I'm, I'm not remembering right now. He did something wrong, and I think it was killed somebody. And um, he, he, uh, he, it was perfect crime. Nobody would ever know. Nobody would ever know. Nobody would ever find out. Right? And he said, if only I can keep this to myself. And the second he said that, the story just takes off. I started running. I ran faster. The idea was coming at me. It's exactly what Paul is speaking about right here. Once you hear something, it revives in you. The sin revives in you, and you have to do what you never wanted to do. And he said, I can just keep it to myself, and nobody will ever know. And all of a sudden, the imp came after him, and he's running from it. He's screaming from it. i got to get out. He's banging his head, everything. 
Read Poe if you want to understand somebody that knew the depths of the human soul. I'm telling you, he is a master of, he's also the, anybody know uh, Sherlock Holmes? Mm -hmm. He was not the first mystery writer, okay? Uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, he copied Edgar Allan Poe. Poe was the first mystery writer. He wrote The Murders in the Rue Morgue. He wrote The uh, Cask of Montillado and a couple others. Was Poe Christian? Was that? No, I don't think he was a believer. But he understood the depravity of man. Now, he may have been. He suffered. He was like Johnny Cash. He was a dark, dark soul. Mm -hmm. You know, Cash you came to tell. the Lord. But what? <laughs> oh, yeah. But he also does some of the most wonderful poems, beautiful things. He does one story called The uh, Landor's Cottage. And it is so remarkably beautiful. It's just, it, it, it is just one of these stories that you read and you think, I'm not sure what I just read. It was so wonderful, uh -huh. right? But anyway, he, he, just read Poe if you have time. I'd rather have you read the Bible. Yeah. You know, like I say, I haven't read Poe <laughs> since. But if you are a reader, Edgar Allan Poe is a great place to go. And you could read him again and again, and you'll never get tired of it. You, you won't tire of it. But anyway, that, the Imp of the Perverse is what Paul is writing about. And probably Poe read... Romans and said, oh, I've got a great line here. I've got, it's a perfect. Anyway, so uh, when a new law, oh, the very thing that shouldn't be done suddenly springs to life and we want to do that thing. When a new law is introduced in a land, the very first thing that happens is for people to think about breaking that law or devising ways to get around it. Tell me that's not true. Every single time a law is passed, there's somebody out there that's trying to think of a way to get around it. Oh, if you come to this website, we can get you around this law. And we can, you know, people want to come to America, but there's this set procedure. Well, we know how to get around it, right? There's a million ways of doing it. One is coming illegally and, uh, and then uh, electing a president that will just pardon them or all these different things. It doesn't matter what it is. If there is a law, people will do their very, very best to break that law in the most magnificent way possible, too. All right? So, in other words, apart from the law... Oh, wait, i got to go back one sentence here. Yeah, the first thing they want to do is get, ar get around it. But before the law was introduced, there was no impetus for doing the very thing which they are now intent on doing, right? In other words, apart from the law, sin was dead, all right? We've got no law. We introduce the law. Everybody wants to get around that law. But before the law was written, nobody cared about that. Nobody gave a second thought to it. But once that law was introduced, sin was revived and the people died because of it, all right? To now look at this from the other side of the cross, okay? We can see the immense glory of our state in Christ. A corporate body of law was given to Israel, a law which was based on God's standards of righteousness and holiness. With the introduction of this law, sin, in fact, took the opportunity, and it produced all manner of evil desire. What do you think the rest of the book, after the law was given at the end of Deuteronomy, from Joshua, oh. Judges, and Ruth, and Samuel, and all the way through, what do you see people doing? Breaking God's law, spiraling down. It's, God is trying to show us, through the people of Israel, why we need Jesus. That's the whole point of this 2,000-year this mm -hmm. exercise of redeeming this people, bringing them into the land showing them that they need to be holy in his presence, and it cannot happen, no matter how hard they try. We were talking about uh, Trump being like King Josiah today, me and a couple people, mom, and I, was it you I was talking, oh, my daughter. 
maybe it was somebody. Anyway, um, uh, we have a guy that is kind of like King Josiah, and that he's trying to reform this nation. He's trying to get rid of how many times has he gotten rid of? Oh, it was Rhoda and Sergio. Yeah, that's who it was. Uh, he's he signed laws to get rid of the LGBT stuff mm -hmm. here and here, and he's thrown out all of these regulations. Okay, he's kind of trying to reform the nation in the way that Josiah might have. All right it's going to be ineffective. It's going to last for 10 minutes and then it's going to go right back the way it was because people are like dogs that want to return to the vomit. They want to see how can we get away with this? Well, we can't get away with it if it's not a law, right? So let's make a law that we can try to get around and it's the imp of the perverse in all of us. In a national imp, it's an individual imp, it's a church imp when somebody does something we think, well, we're gonna let them stay in the church because we can reform them. Right? When the Bible has said if they're doing that thing, you have to expel them from the fellowship. The imp of the perverse can take over any body, whether it's a person, whether it's a small group, whether it's an entire nation or a whole world. It will take over. Okay? No doubt about it. It's scary, isn't it? It's horrifying. So to now look at the other side of the cross, I said that we have a corporate body of law was given to Israel. With the introduction of the law, sin came into effect evil desire came into it. The only way to be relieved from this, as we see in the object lesson of Israel, the only way to be relieved from this was by grace, through faith, that God's provisions for the sins committed would remove the sin. It's the only way to get rid of this problem. These included sacrifices and a day of atonement under the law. At the end of the law comes Christ, okay? But for right now, in the law, the only way to take care of this is the Day of Atonement. Been typing it two weeks now. Two sermons have taken. Uh, this past week, I told you two, uh, last week that the sermon typing for that week was brutal. Yeah. It was terrible. This week, I was still sitting in the chair. She has dinner ready at 7 o'clock. I've been <laughs> here since 4 a.m. I'm still typing. I said, just give me my dinner. I'm going to sit here and eat until I can get this done. And it's it's been very... because. I don't want to make a mistake in this this particular sermon. This is the, it's like the Passover. It is the pinnacle thing of the book of Leviticus, and it points to the pinnacle thing that happened in human history. I don't want to make an error. Sergio and Rhoda and I, one verse, one verse. I did 11 verses on Monday, and that was 14 or 15 hours, so it's more than an hour a verse. I spent one hour on the FaceTime with Sergio and Rhoda over one verse trying to understand the Hebrew of a particular set of words. I think it was three words. And I said, now read the next verse. And he said, well, then it was very complicated. Mm -hmm. And I'm telling you, there are scholars that completely are divided on it. They're both got good arguments. You think which one is right? Why is this the way it is? Now, I'm going to tell you what, we've got 2,000 years worth of scholars. And these great scholars were reading commentaries that go back those 2,000 years. So this is not something to take lightly. That's something that God has on his mind, and it's right in the very heart of the book of Leviticus. And it's because it points directly to Jesus Christ and what he did. So I don't want to make an error in it. And you have to finally say, I've got to type something. And after an hour, you say, I still haven't typed it because I don't want to be wrong. It, it, it's Boy, I, I lost a lot of hair that day, didn't I? Or got more gray in my beard or something. <laughs> I don't know what. Can't lose a lot of hair when you don't have a lot of hair. Anyway... Um, so, uh, Day of Atonement, even the sacrifices became sinful, though. He told them, have these sacrifices. This is what will give atonement for you. But even the sacrifices became sinful when they were made without the faith, which necessitated them in the first place. All the way through the Old Testament and repeated by Jesus, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Your sacrifices are loathing to me. I abhor them. Who told you to offer these? When the law told them to do it. But he's 
telling them you're not doing it according to the way the law intended for you to do it. You're doing it out of rote. You're doing it out of show. You're offering defiled animals. You wouldn't even offer to your governor. How, why should I take them? He's going all the way through showing them again and again that even their sacrifices, which were supposed to remove their sins, were sinful. And that brings me to the thought of uh, George Washington when he prayed and he said, I'm so sorry for my prayers. I'm so sorry because I know my prayers are sinful to your ears. Imagine that. Somebody that understands the depravity of man so deeply that when he prayed, he knew that his sins were offending God. Okay? Everything we do is tainted with sin. If it wasn't for Jesus, he could not hear those prayers. You know, somebody said that this is a, uh, I think he was a Quaker, and he was walking. This is during the, uh, the war. Uh, yeah, Washington was praying. And there was a, a Quaker that was, it might have been a Shaker, but I think it was a Quaker, and he was walking. He was on the British side. And he overheard Washington praying alone outside. And he ran back to the house, and he said to his wife, he said, all is lost. He said, any God that would not hear the prayers of a man that I just heard, we have lost. And this is when things were going well for the British. He said, he, he will hear those prayers. And here, Washington is praying how sinful I am to even come to you and offer you my prayers and how sinful my prayers are to your ears. Imagine that. So it shows you. It shows you how desperately we need Christ. Anyway, um, the sacrifices became sinful. However, in a beautiful demonstration of God's righteousness, mercy, love, justice, truth, holiness, and grace, a promise was made throughout the time of this law that God would provide a final sacrifice which would, once and for all, handle all of the sin debt, which was excited into being because of the law. You know, if, if somebody would take five minutes to read the book of Romans and think through what it says, they would not post that nonsense on those videos saying, his commandments aren't burdensome and I have to be under the law and I'm pleasing God by fulfilling the law for him. If they just thought through what they were saying, they would understand the absolute depravity of their own heart and that that law only highlights it. It doesn't remove their sin. Anyway, um, so uh, uh, he, the sacrifice would once and for all take care of this sin debt. Jesus came and lived his life under this body of law without sinning. And then he gave his life as an offering and in exchange for those of us who cannot do so. You think of what Jesus did. When I say it's going to be better in, in heaven than it was in Eden, it's because we will understand what he did for us. We will have a memory of it. All right, we might not remember all the details. I have no idea. All I know is we're going to know that we were wrong and he was right and he was willing to do this for us. And that's why it says in the book of Revelation, you know, hail the lamb that was slain because we will know forever that he did this for us. As he fulfilled the law when he died, the law died with him for those who trust in him through faith in his work. Because we were dead to the law, we are dead to sin. Thank you. When we were, because we're dead to the law, we're dead to sin. This is what Paul was speaking about in Romans 6, 14, and 15. Now we'll go back and read that, and then it'll make more sense to you. 6, 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Certainly not. Right? There's another one of those certainly nots. You, you, you go back and you revisit what Paul said earlier, and all of a sudden that makes sense now. Oh, now I see. Right? The law has no power over us. Therefore, let us not sin because we're not under the law, but under grace. 
All right, if he tells us not to do something, now we, we don't have to do it. Sin doesn't revive in us because we do or don't do it. All right, it's still sin that we do it, right? It's wrong, it's morally wrong to do this thing, but there's no reviving of it in us. When he says don't commit adultery, and we know that we can't commit adultery, and we try to find a way around it, or we just go directly to it because we say, I'm going to do this thing. He told me, and who is he to tell me I can't do this thing? <laughs> right? Well, now, when he says don't commit adultery, it's because we can not commit adultery. We know that Jesus died for us, and we can be relieved from that. As he's going to say in a couple more verses here in Romans 7, who will free me from this body of death? Who will do it? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Coming soon to a verse near you. Life application. There is a struggle going on in each one of us. The laws which exist around us are given, and when they are introduced, we now have a standard by which we will be judged. And a, Right? Don't teach Japanese refrigerator. Okay? We're going to be judged by that, or actually tempt a Japanese with refrigerator. Anyway, and she can say it perfectly now, but it only took her 27 years. So, anyway, I'm kidding. She actually speaks English very well. One thing that I, I won't say it. She's my wife. Anyway, um, the laws would smack you one. Yeah, she will. I'll get the Ginsu knife when I get home. And because she's not under law but under grace, she won't be imputed sin for doing it. Okay, the laws which exist around us are given, and when they are introduced, we now have a standard by which we'll, we will be judged and a premise by which we are to conduct ourselves. But the law, when given, can also incite in us to wrongdoing by the giving of the law. Does this make the law the cause of sin? No. It only shows us that we are prone to sin. In our weak and fallen state, we need a release from life's temptations, and it is found in Jesus. Yes. Let each of us look to him for strength against this war which wages in our lives. Right? It's not going to come from any other place. It's only going to come from Christ. It's not going to come from Mary. It's not going to come from... Uh, you know, traveling to Japan and talking to a, a big bronze statue, the Daibutsu, it's not going to come from anything like that. It can only come from Christ who is taking care of this problem for us. And we can open our hearts to him. We can say, come in and help me with this. And he will. But we have to be willing to yield to him in the process. Okay, we've got time for another verse. Definitely. Verse 7, 9. Once I was alive apart from law, but when the commandments commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. And this one says, revived, sin revived, and I died. Sprang to life, I like that better. This verse has been interpreted in a variety of ways. Some insist that Paul is speaking of himself in the first person, at a time when he felt secure in himself concerning his spiritual nature. Excuse me. However, when he realized the true weight of the purpose of the law, sin revived in me and I died. It was at this moment that he realized his fallen state, when before this, he felt assured in his own righteousness. This is one example. Like I say, people have translated this verse or looked at it in a couple of ways. This is one. I was good. I was righteous. Okay? But when he realized the true weight and purpose of the law, sin revived and I died, he understood right then. He felt assured in his own righteousness, and then that broke apart. This is not likely. This is not likely because he wasn't saved until he was saved. He wasn't spiritually alive as a Pharisee, persecuting God's people, and then spiritually, suddenly spiritually dead when he encountered the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. So I don't think this is a good one. Both Testaments show that it is faith in God and in his promises by which one lives, not adherence to the law. As Paul lived under the law, he should have known that the just 
shall live by his faith. That's from the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4. So he should have known that. So I don't think that's correct. Others look at him speaking of an age of innocence or accountability. Okay? Paul was spiritually alive until he came to a point in life where he mentally grasped the law and thus went from spiritual life to spiritual death. This is incorrect, and it's based on an emotional interpretation of biblical doctrine. This concept requires inserting incorrect preconceived notions about the nature of man into the text, rather than drawing out what the Bible teaches. The Bible is abundantly clear that we are spiritually dead even from birth. We inherit Adam's sin, and there's nothing which causes us to spiritually die. It is a part of our nature from birth. But when I first give these examples, it sounds right, right? Until I yeah, give you the explanation. Right. Yeah, it's the proverb, you know, one man gives his case and it sounds great until the next man steps forward. And then he gives his case and you say, oh, it's like reading the commentaries on the book of Leviticus or, or uh, the Day of Atonement, right? I already have a knowledge of what is being said there. What I want to know is the details of particular verses. That's what I want to know. And this guy says this and this guy says this and they completely contradict and these are the finest scholars that have read from the finest scholars for 2,000 years. And yet they come to different conclusions over two or three words in a single verse, right? This man gives his case and you say, that is wonderful. Oh, that's fantastic. And then you read this and you say, that's really good. Let's do another one. Some scholars believe that he is speaking of the people who received the law, Israel. They were alive apart from the law. But when the law came, sin revived and they died. Makes sense, doesn't it, right? In essence, Paul is speaking in the first person, but relating it to his heritage, Israel. This is also unlikely for the same reason as the two previous cases. The people were already born spiritually dead and each needed to be made alive individually, just as their father Abraham was. The introduction of the law mercifully magnified the truth of this. Okay, A fourth option, which will be substantiated in the coming verses, is that he is writing about the introduction of any law the knowledge of which revives sin, and through that sin we die. In essence, it would take us all the way back to Adam and his original sin, which we've already looked at twice today. Thus, Paul is speaking in the first person of his humanity. This is certainly the case. He's been speaking about one commandment, coveting, as the basis for his analysis. However, coveting doesn't cover the entire law of Moses. It is merely one aspect of it. Further, he speaks of law, not the right. law. That's there you go. There is no definite article in the original Greek. Therefore, it is whatever law is given. In other words, he is using coveting as an example of any law. All will have the same effect. The fourth option is certainly what he is speaking about, and this will be seen in what he states as he progresses. He will speak in plural terms, we, and then in the singular, I. By merely looking at his statements from comparing them to Adam's transgression, we can see what occurred in humanity. The use of coveting is simply demonstrating that whatever law is given will have the same effect. All right, we talked about that already. Japan, refrigerators, and whatever. Through the law is the knowledge of sin. Persia with their, their beanie caps over there. Whatever, whatever law. Through the law is the knowledge of sin, and apart from law, sin is dead. All right? That's just the way it is. Life application. We've got 15 more minutes and we got to, we'll do one more verse after this. Faith. This is what God looks for in each one of us. When we trust in our own righteousness, it is saying that we can do it all without God. 
That's what that guy, I feel so bad for these people that post this nonsense that I'm obeying the law of Moses. I'm getting my way to heaven and God is pleased with me. He could not be more displeased with that person because he's doing it with the wrong intent. He's not doing it in faith. And he'll deny it. He'll say, I'm doing this in faith because I love Jesus. If you love Jesus, then you would accept him as the fulfillment of the law as he said. Then you would read the writings of Paul and you would forget that you're reinserting yourself back into a law which has been annulled very clearly in the New Testament. You're not pleasing God. You are more than displeasing to God. You're what Paul warns against all the way through, including the book of Hebrews, which is probably Paul, but even if it's not, it's warned against from page to page to page. Better than, better than, better than. You've got better than the angels, better than Moses. I'm sorry, yeah, better than Moses, better than Aaron, better than the law, better than. Christ is better than. That's where we put our hope. That's where we put our faith. All right? So... This is what God looks for, and when we trust in our righteousness and is saying we can do it all without God, the introduction of the law is intended to show us that this is not so. It is faith in Jesus and his work which delivers us from death to life. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Okay, let's do another verse. This is a short... Oh, we might get two. We'll see. Go ahead. Well, I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. Yep. When God gave Adam his one and only commandment in the Garden of Eden... It was intended as a means of life. Returning to Genesis 2, 16 and 17, we can see this. Let me read it again. Let me turn back here. I've already put the thing down and I didn't put it. So Genesis 2, 16 and 17. I've already read it. I remember it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. That's a law of life, isn't it? It's a law that promises death if it's broken, but if he doesn't break it, then what? Then he'll live, right? Same thing as the law of Moses. What does it say in Leviticus 18, verse 5? The man who does these things shall live by them, right? It's a law of life. The law of Moses is a law of life if you can do it. And it shows us right there in the Garden of Eden and again in the law of Moses and all the way through the Old Testament. Can't do it. I'm sorry, we can't do it. But it is a law of life. Let's go on. We can see this. Although a promise of death came with disobedience, it thus inferred that the commandment was meant to bring life if obeyed. This is the nature of obedience. When a law is adhered to, one is fulfilling the intent of the law. However, if you want a law of poverty, you want to break it, go to Japan and tell them not to say refrigerator. And if you don't, then you'll be poor very soon. Okay, right? That's I'm kidding, of course, but you know what I'm saying. The law is intended to do one thing, and it ends up doing another thing. All right? This is the nature of obedience. When a law is adhered to, one is fulfilling the intent of the law. However, as is noted, the commandment which was to bring life, don't eat of this fruit, you'll live forever and forever and forever. The command that was intended, people say, no, Adam couldn't live forever. I have heard people say that 50 or 60 times. That's absolutely wrong. Adam could have lived forever. All right? He didn't because he broke the law. But Adam would never, ever have died. His body would never have worn out if he did not do what he was told not to do. He broke the commandment. He the broke the, well, that's right. He broke the commandment. Well, he broke the law that was given. That's why he uses no oh, article okay. in front of law. It's a law, but it's a commandment within the law. That's okay. right. You're right, though. But all right, he would have lived forever. He was immortal when he was created, perfect and would never die. That is implied in those verses, okay? When a law is adhered to, one is fulfilling the intent of the law. But as noted, the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. 
This wasn't the commandment's fault, nor the fault of the one who gave it. We saw that two verses ago. Instead, it was the fault of the person who didn't follow suit in obedience. If you just do this, you know, if you don't murder somebody in America, you're not going to get the, you know, the old Sparky. That's right. In Florida, just for people online, Old Sparky is our electric chair. It's still used, I believe. Yeah. It's it's still active. That's Old Sparky, and when they put you in there, you become Old Sparky. But uh, yeah, if you if you don't do that, then you don't get the, the death penalty. The commandment is given so that you have life. And when people violate the commandment, which they are prone to do, because they say I'm going to kill that person, and they know they can't, but I'm going to work away around it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to hide the body, and then they get caught. Old Sparky. Okay, the law produces death. Okay? However, as is noted, he says, I found it to bring death. This wasn't the commandment's fault, nor of the one who gave it. Instead, it was the fault of the person who didn't follow suit in obedience. The same is found in Leviticus 18.5, which I just told you. The man who does these things shall live by them. The law was intended to bring life. God knew it wouldn't, but the intent is to give life. We do get life through the law. Every person here that comes to Jesus Christ gets life through the law. Why? Because he fulfilled the law. We can't have eternal life from the law. It's not going to happen. It only produces death, but Christ fulfilled the law. We are going to get to heaven through obedience to the law. It's just not our obedience. We have to make that understood. It is not our obedience to the law. It is Christ's perfect obedience. Although stated in the positive, rather than the negative, as in the Garden of Eden, the result is the same. One said, you know, if you don't eat this fruit, you will surely live. And the other one says, if you do these things, you shall live. One is positive, one is negative. It's the same end result. Okay? Um, uh, if you do these things, I said that. It wasn't the fault of the law that one disobeyed. The law was good. It was also suited to produce good, not evil. However, evil ensued through disobedience of it, resulting in death. Um, yeah, we're going mm, yeah, we'll do one more. Let me give a life application. When we look at the evil around us, or when we see calamity occur, we want to lash out at God. Everybody knows that. You see it on Facebook. You see it in your own heart. When something bad happens, you say, oh, God, I'm so angry right now. Well, where's your anger being directed? You're talking to him, right? He's the author of everything that happens around you. It must be his fault. All right? That's our natural inclination is sure. to think that way. But this attitude fails to consider that he gave us free will and we have exercised it to our own detriment. The fact that evil exists is not God's fault, nor does it mean that he isn't competent to end it. People say there's no God because there's evil in the world, right? He hasn't fixed the problem that he said he'd fix. It doesn't mean anything, he just hasn't fixed it. Big word, Y-E-T, -E yet. He's got a plan and it is being worked out, and he's even told us the end of the plan already, so that we don't get disheartened and we don't fall into despair. And we don't listen to people that say that stupid cliche, I'm an atheist because there's evil in the world and he hasn't fixed it. Therefore, he's not a competent God. He just hasn't fixed it yet. All right? Yet. Okay? So the fact that it exists doesn't mean he is incompetent. The evil isn't intended, uh, isn't ended yet, it has no bearing on what will someday be. His plan is greater than our temporary perceptions of the world around us. Have faith that he will bring all things to a satisfactory conclusion. 
we better stop there. We've got five minutes, and it may go over on that, and I don't want to do that to folks online. What so. was Poe's thing, uh, the uh, perverted imp? Or, uh, the imp of the perverse. And you can read perverse. everything from Poe online. You don't have to go buying the book. You don't have to uh, do anything like that. All you need to do is just go online. You can read um, Mark Twain's writings, you know, the um, uh, Innocence Abroad, where he uh, uh, documents the uh, travel of, uh, that he did all the way through Paul's right, uh, area and then all the way through Israel, and he describes Israel so that we don't make the error that we're in right now in the world of the fake Estenians belonging, uh, you know, belonging there and there being so many of them and the land was beautiful and fruitful. He documents exactly what Israel was like, exactly. We are being told the largest lie in the world right now with what they are saying about the palace, the Fakistanians. But if you want to read about Poe, you know, and none of his stories are long. There's a couple that are kind of long, and there are a couple of them that really miss the mark, like the balloon that goes out in the outer space and ends up on the moon. But, you know, anyway, he was writing at a time when people didn't know. But they're interesting, and he, he has a knack for the human psyche, which is really incredible. So if you like that kind of stuff, go online, read it, you know. But Input the Perverse, it's a really good story. Let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Ray, you're here tonight. Why don't you pray us out? All right. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you. We praise you for the word that you end this with. Mm -hmm. We know that you're here tonight. You've shown us your word and how to apply it and use it for our lives. How you came, made it through faith with you. We just know that you... Uh, died and rose again, and this is what you did. Show us how much you loved us and you cared for us. From the beginning of time to now. Yeah, you're not yet yet. We're not yet done either. Guide us <laughs> and direct us. We'll please you and honor you and glorify you. Help us to please you by being other people about you. And you lead people for us, to us. Oh, Lord, we can tell them about you and what you've done for us. You're going to do for, do for them. We just want to praise you and want to give you the glory, Lord. We just ask you bless each and every one here tonight, wherever they be. Lord, you will guide their heart, souls that love and serve you and honor you. And your precious word and your life given us. Thank you again for your mighty love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Oh, Thank you, Rick. Oh, let me back this baby up here. Oh, wow. Are you okay, Joe? Oh, yeah. Let's see here. Oops, I'm going to the wrong one. We're going to go to uh, break. And we're going to back this baby up. Three, two, one. All right, everybody. Have a most wonderful week. We love all of you. Take good care. We'll see you Sunday, we hope. Bring somebody with you this time. Okay, there we go. Wow, wow, wow. Oh, yes, me too. Carol, don't you feel lucky now that you didn't get caught? <laughs> I thought that'd be the perfect example. How's it going? You tickled me. I did the same thing. I feel like Eve. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Oh. Oh, yes, they got them right there. No picking, no picking the. the Hey, but they have lots of rocks. They got, oh, that's the.